Hello, I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast, where my guest this week is one of the great survivors of the professional game, Andrew Higginson. Thanks for coming in, Andrew. Thanks for having me. You turned pro in 1996, and it was actually a very difficult time to be starting because throughout the 90s there have been hundreds of players on the tour, but that was the season that they were cutting it to 96, so you really needed a very good season to have any chance of staying on, and it was a lot to ask. Oh, it was, without question. Um, I think that year I'd got I'd, I'd won a couple of games, but I got to, I think it was the penultimate round of the World Championships. But even with that, um, I, it wasn't enough to sort of stay on. So I had one sort of season there, um, up at Blackpool and Albert Castle, and I enjoyed it. But then, like, said, like you just said then, Michael, they sort of cut it short for me. And then, and then I spent the next... Don't know how many years sort of trying to get back on, and I was sort of getting on, and then they cut the tour a little bit more, and then I'd fall off, and then I'd get back on. So it, it was a, a really difficult period. Those probably maybe eight nine years, I would say. But obviously the love of the game, you just want to you want to carry on, and and, and you you want to sort of fulfil your dreams, basically. People see someone in that situation and they think, oh, he'll be fine eventually. He's playing away, he's still working at his game. But of course, you have a life away from snooker as well and you've got to earn a living and all these things come into it. So throughout that time, was there ever a period where you thought, maybe this just isn't going to work out and I have to walk away? Well, it was, I was very lucky. I had a fella who sponsored me uh, and managed me. Sadly, he passed away actually um, about two months ago. But... Um, he, he came in and he said, whatever you need, I will help you. He loved the game and uh, he liked the way I played. And sort of, I, I, he, he sort of gave me the um, the belief and the backing for me just to carry on. I, there was a lot of players, very, very, very good amateurs, who um, no longer play the game because of that very reason you mentioned there, where the, you know, you've, I know it's an old cliche, but you've got to put bread and water on the, on the table at the end of the day and... And if you're not earning money, you know, you, where, where, where does the money come from? Part-time jobs, but then you've got to give as much as you can to snooker. So I was very, very fortunate that I had someone, as well as a, a, a great, well, great parents, to sort of back me as well. But, you know, it, <laughs> there was times there where I genuinely did think, you know, is this going to work? Because, as I say, I'd been on and off a few times. And then it was, wasn't until I got to, I was, <laughs> I was 29, so I was, I was really sort of, where some people are sort of thinking, you know, they'd definitely be sort of quitting from there, but that's when I had sort of maybe the breakthrough and had got on the tour for the, the, the last time and touch wood have been on ever since. And you got to factor in as well that throughout that period when you're not achieving your ambitions, I guess you've got to keep reminding yourself that you are good enough because that must be difficult to do as well. It's very difficult because you know players say time and time again that you know oh, I'm flying in practice or I'm, I'm doing this in practice but and we can all do that but it's doing it on the you know under under the spotlight it's doing it in your matches and as you say it's very difficult because obviously everyone's doing exactly the same as you so that the, the standard of snooker that I've seen over the years since I've been on the tour is is creeping up with your ability so even though you may be getting better the other 127 players are also getting better and then the new ones coming on, they're just as good. So it's it's very, very cutthroat. It's not, people think, you know, it's, it's easy, you're a professional sneaker playing your pot balls for a living, but there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that is probably more difficult than the actual pot in the balls, to be fair. 
When you battled your way back onto the tour, you actually had the greatest week of your career only a few months later, the Welsh Open of 2007. And we'll come to that in a moment, but people often say that was completely out of the blue. It wasn't entirely, because just before it, you'd done really well in Malta, and you'd beaten Steve Davis. Well, that, yeah, that was it. You know, like, I think I'd finished number one on the, on, so I think it was the Pios or whatever the system was called. I'd finished number one, I'd, I'd done really well, and then... Two things happened just before the Welch, as you said, the breakthrough, but two things happened. The first one being when I got to Malta, it was my first trip uh, abroad um, playing snooker. Um, so we, we travelled over there, I played the wild card, and then I played Steve Davis, which he was, that was the, this was the first thing that happened. You know, I'm playing a legend of the, of the sport, like, a, you know, he was my dad's favourite player, and I actually remember being sat in, in sort of the, the room waiting before they announced us and we were having a cup of tea and the door opened, I mean my dad was sat, the door opened and, and Davis walked in and it was it was one of the most surreal moments of me playing snooker. It was like, not to sound cheesy, but it was like things went in a bit like slow motion. Me and my dad looked at each other and this fella walked in, he looked like he was about 15 foot tall, he he was elegant, he was so smart and, and we were giggling like two little kids in you know in a school playground because I thought I'm actually going to live not only sort of my dream playing Davis but but also my dad's you know he, he wanted two things he always said to me he wanted two things one was to play Steve Davis and one was to play at the Crucible and we were about to do the first of those things so it was a massive thing especially when I went out then and beat him the second part what happened that week was I played um, Ken Doherty on the TV, first TV game. He was the defending champion. He was the defending champion, yeah. And I went out and I was a bag of nerves. I, I couldn't hold my cue. I, was, I felt sick. But I managed to, I think I won the first couple of frames. And then Ken's beat me 5-2. But I'd done sort of two things there in my career in the space of two or three days. And when I left there, even though I wish I'd have performed better against Ken, the two things I'd done there just set me in good stead for the tournament coming. And when I got to the Welsh, I, I felt as though I'd sort of was like on a roll in a mad way. And all I'd done was I'd, I'd beat Steve Davis, a massive thing, but I'd won, I'd won a game, that was it. But because I'd done the TV thing and, the, and played one of the, the, the best ever, one of the legends of the sport, I thought, well... That's, I've sort of done the hard part now. I can just maybe just enjoy this now because I've, I've already done it. Well, you certainly did enjoy it. You find yourself in the quarterfinals against Ali Carter and you made a one four seven. And people might think, well, everyone's making 147s nowadays. It wasn't the case in 2007. If you made a maximum on TV in those days, it was still a very big deal indeed. Oh, it was, it was massive. I remember someone telling me afterwards that I think it was, I don't know if it was the 12th or the 13th person to get it on TV and I, and I went home and I looked at the at sort of the stats or whatever you want to call them and the names that were there like your Davis, Hendry or Sullivan, you know, Higgins, Williams, Ding and my name's just there with him and it was, a, it was again, it was very, very surreal but it was just a moment that, uh, as you say, it was, it, well, it, it was it was incredible Absolutely to have my dad there as well up and, and all my family watching back home watching the watching it happen it was just sort of a pinch yourself moment but it was quite strange because when I was making the 147 when I got down to the final black the commentary door was open like very very slightly and I heard 
uh, Clive Everton, who's got a very distinctive voice. I heard him say this for the 147, and I was on the black, and everything in my body and my mind was telling me to stand up and compose yourself and play it again. But I was that sort of in the moment, if you want to say that, of I, I just got down and, and hit it and just prayed, prayed it went in. Thank God it did. And I think everyone looked at that at the time and thought, oh, that's great. Everyone likes Andrew and he's had his big moment now and that that'll be what he takes away from this tournament. Yeah. But of course it wasn't because you ended up getting to the final, which was obviously a much bigger achievement in itself. And I'm not going to actually tell the story of the match because it was an incredible match. I'm going to let you tell it from your perspective. What are your memories of a match that swung one way, then the other, and then, sadly for you, back the other way at the yeah. end? Well, we started, and, and I think... I think how it went, obviously Neil got a little bit of a lead and um, I just remember a couple of shots that sort of, I mean, I could say I was I was unlucky or what have you, but a little bit of running early doors maybe went against me and I was 6-2 behind. But I wasn't I wasn't fearful or anything because I thought, I know I'm playing well, as good as I know Neil is, as, as he's proved to be the years just gone by now, you know, he's, he's arguably one of the best players ever. Um, but I remember going back, I had a bit of food, a bit of a sleep, and then I come out and I just thought, I'm just going to go for a few now. And I think I got, I won the first, I think I won the first frame to go 6-3, and then I think I made a century. Or I ended up getting back to six each at the interval. And I mean, like I said, this is Neil from like 15 years ago now, but I sort of remember looking at him at the time and thinking... Uh, I felt as though I had him as well. I thought, this isn't in the script. He should be just beating me quite easily, quite comfortably. And and then when we come out after the the, um, the mid-session and the, the next two frames, but then all of a sudden things start turning the other way around. I remember him going to the toilet and I sat there in my thoughts thinking, you know, God, you're so close are you? And then he won a frame and he went to the toilet and it was a few minutes and I sat there and then... Obviously, before I know it, I'm playing a decider. And I, I probably should have won, if, if, if I remember rightly, I think I should have won nine, possibly nine, seven. I posted a brilliant red, I can picture it right now. And I finished on the black, quite high on the black. And if the black goes in, the balls are there. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win the frame, but the way I was playing, the way I was feeling, I really fancied it and I rattled the black. And he got in, and before I know it, as I say, I'm shaking hands with a decider. And, you know, I, I wish I could just take back sort of one shot. I went for the plant, like a ridiculous shot, but it, but looking back now, it was just desperation. I thought, he's getting on top here, and I need to do something. And, and I played a shot that I wouldn't, I wouldn't even play in practice. I won't play in practice on my own. And I played the shot, and then... And then before I know it, I'm 20 points behind and then I'm chasing. And and in the end, you know, um, he's, he's fell over the line and he's beat me 9-8. But I remember my dad saying to me afterwards that, you know, and this might sound really stupid to a lot of people, this, but he said it would probably have been too perfect to have won it, you know, to, to, to go on this, like they were calling it, like Cinderella Man story and, and all that. And that might seem daft to some people saying that, oh, obviously I wanted to win. But when I thought of what he'd said, it was right. It was like, you know, I made the headlines. I had an absolute ball for a, for a week. Oh, and we lived, <laughs> you know, we lived. I remember each game I'd played, 
we stayed in a different hotel every time I won. So we started off in like a little sort of cheap hotel <laughs> and then I won, I beat um, Mark Ofu. So then we moved to a different hotel a little bit more, so I'd won a bit more money. Then we moved to a different hotel when I beat Higgins and before I know it, I'm staying in the Celtic Manor for like the semis and the final. And even like that tale there, it, it, you know, it, it's things, memories that I've got that I can look, look back on, not with regret, but like just on fondness. Andrew Higginson has had a great week, beating a former world champion, John Higgins, and two other members of the top 16, Alistair Carter and Stephen Maguire. Eight. He was within one frame of the title itself. And it's Neil Robertson. From two down with three to play. Fourteen. Fifteen. And he's going oh. to walk away with the £35,000 first prize. Just a wonderful match. Robertson wins by nine frames to eight. It's his title, but in many ways it's been Higginson's week. An incredible adventure. You'd only been on the Challenge Tour a year or so earlier. So when you came away from it all, it's always the question, isn't it? What was the overriding emotion? Was it, we've had a blast, or was it more a case of how close we came? I think it was a bit of both, Michael, to be honest with you. I think when, when, the further it goes, I think the more you look back and think it was close. But I still should take away the fact of, of what, what we achieved there. You know, I was unranked, I'd been on the tour months. Um, and it was it was just a pure enjoyment, you know. Uh, but yeah, mixed emotions. Probably even to this day you would you would think, great, a great time, but you know, if only. But you I think I think if you thought like that you'd be doing that with a lot of things in your life, not just not only snooker. You spoke there about your dad's ambition for you to play at the Crucible. Mm. And two years later, you achieved that. Yeah. Three years after that, you went back, and this time you actually won your first round match. And then you played Jamie Jones. And this is two players who wouldn't have been expected to be in the World Quarterfinals, but now you're both one match away from doing just that. You were well behind going into the last session. You got back on level terms, and then Jamie pulled away again at the end. Very similar yeah. to the Welsh final. Very, very similar. Um, I was 10-6 behind. Uh, and I've won the four frames to come, and, and again I felt great. And in all fairness, he's came, he, he came out at the, at the at the last session, and I think he made I think he made a century, and he, he he deserved to win totally. I went into the dressing room afterwards and wished him all the luck, and I thought he was the better player in the match. I had my moments in there, but I think overall I think he deserved to win. And and obviously he went on to play. I think it was Carter in the quarters, which would have been an experience, but again. You know, you've you've got to take some kind of positives in there. You're playing in the mecca of of, of our sport, and and it was it was totally enjoyable to have your family and friends there watching. It was it was yeah, again, it was incredible. People remember you so much for the Welsh, but overall, that was probably your best season because earlier that season you had won one of the PTC events, and you talked earlier about playing some of the all-time greats when you beat one of the very greatest of all time in the final of that. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, it was funny because I actually changed my cue. I was one of these very, like, not so much superstitious. I just didn't want to tinker around with coaches or changing cues or anything like that. And um, I finally 
got the colleagues to change and, and when I look now people are changing him every tournament it's 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 madness but but at the time I changed my queue I got a John Paris queue and um, and I'd been playing quite well in practice and then I'd gone to the tournament and and I played I played brilliant the whole tournament I think I lost something like I think it was something ridiculous, like five or six frames in the whole of the... I know they were only best of sevens, but I we think... We had to play about seven matches, I think, to win them. Well, that was it, yeah. And then when I played John in the final, obviously... John Higgins, this Yeah, is, John yeah. Higgins, sorry, yeah. Um, I'd become, obviously, very good friends with him previous to that. So to play him, it was it was like a nice, a nice position to be in because not only was I playing my friend, but if he'd have beat me, I wouldn't have minded... You know, and, and obviously beating him, it was a it was a, a massive highlight because as you say, well for me it's him and O'Sullivan and you toss a coin for who, who's the greatest I think ever. So that was part of the PTC series, and of course if you did well in those events you got through to the grand finals, which you did that season largely on the back of that win. That was in Galway in the west of Ireland, and you did really well. Semi finals. Yeah, again I remember it really well. I think well I lost to Stephen Lee in the semi finals. Um but yeah, I, I, I seem to do quite well in the PTCs. I think they used to have like the grand finals, and I think I think I got to them like maybe four years, five years on the on the run. I was always getting to the, the last thirty-two of them, and and obviously that year though, um, again Stephen just played a little bit better than I did, and he went on to win it. But um, but but again, it's another enjoyable tournament. That I mean, and, and I loved Galway as well. That was an, an incredible place to have it, you know. But. Um, but yeah, fun memories. And you were pushing for the top sixteen around that time. Yeah. How much of a thing did that become in your head, Andrew? It didn't actually. It, it wasn't in my head. I, I think. I think. I mean, this sounds really negative. This, but I think one of the things was, I think of all the players that were around that time and and around the rankings, I was probably I stood out a bit like a sore thumb because, around me was all like ranking event winners and, you know legends of the game and, and, and there was me sort of in the mix of it and I earned me right there but but why did you feel that way because as you rightly say you were there because of your results so why should you feel out of place I don't know I think it was just maybe I don't know probably just a little bit of paranoia where you know you're good but, but when you're mixing with the, the very very elite in the game you sort of uh, I suppose question you know uh, whether you, you, you're good enough and when you get to these very, very top boys, um, like I say, I, I, I sort of knew inside I was good enough, but it was, a, it was probably a paranoia as in what other people thought more than anything. But yeah, but I, but I got, I, again, I got very, very close to the to the top, yeah. Do you think those thoughts you had were maybe what stopped you making that extra step? Who knows? Who knows? Again, like I said before, Michael, I think that this game is one of those where everyone will tell you in any sport, but the mental side of the of the game is it far outweighs what goes on on the table, how you deal with stuff, and and I, I don't know maybe some of the things maybe I didn't deal with as good as I probably should have done, but that's that's all well and good in hindsight. We're talking about the heyday of your professional career here, and in the midst of that, you played Ronnie O'Sullivan in a big match at the German Masters. I think it's the only time. You've ever played him in your yeah. career. Now you're giving a wry smile there because I've no doubt you remember what happened. Four nil up and you get beaten five four. How did it happen? Um I don't know to be honest. I think I well I definitely should have won five two. I think what happened at, at, at four nil, and this is not blaming anyone, only myself, but one of the 
one of the press fellas came over to me and I was having I was sat with a cup of tea and he came over and he said, Can I ask you how you how you got over here to Germany? I said, What do you mean? He said, Can you ask can I just ask how you know, how did you travel here? I said, I, I flew over with you know, who did you fly with? I said, I think it was like EasyJet or somebody. How much was your ticket? And I told him whatever it was, like sixty seven pound. I said, Why'd you ask? He said, Oh well, one of your Sullivan's flown over on a private jet with Damien Hurst and you know, it's like this eight million pound jet or something like. And I just remember thinking to myself, and again, it, it's probably the mental side of it. I remember thinking, he shouldn't have come over to me and be asking me that at, at, at the interval. And I remember going away and in the first frame of the next one, I was sat thinking about what he told me, as in, I could imagine an article they're going to write now, as in, you know, Andrew Higginson comes on this flight, 67, and Ronnie's flying and on an eight million pound jet and... He could he could lose here five nil, but anyway, Ronnie won the next frame, and and I ended up I was on I think I was on fifty, and I got an unlucky kiss, on a on a ball. I potted another great ball, and then I ended up sn- uh, touching ball. This is how much I remember it, and I just played away. I snookered him on one red, but left him a long one. But if he misses the long one, and it was a very difficult one. The match is over and he's potted the red and you just when you have that sinking feeling that there's not many people you get it with but I knew he was going to clear up there was I just had that feeling and he cleared up and then there was just one winner after that he ended up winning 5-4 but I think a few people have said afterwards and I've actually sport got quite close with money too and, and and he said to me afterwards that and years afterwards that it was one of the the biggest turning points in his career because he actually went on and won that tournament and then he went on and won the world championships. If he'd have, if he'd have lost that match against me, he'd have been out of the sixteen and about to qualify. Now I'm no danger. He'd, he'd have probably qualified, but he won that tournament and then went on to win the worlds, which was a, obviously a, a big turning point again because then he went on a, a bit of a run then and and was it, it, it's a massive purple patch and was winning all kinds again. Were you able to shrug it off quickly, or was it something that lived with you for a long time? I think I think it was just the person we lost against. I think that's what made it easier. I think if I'd have lost against someone not as good, for argument's sake, I probably would have found it harder. But it's the, it's one of the matches that a lot of people bring up because, obviously, as a snooker player, for for friends at home or or people who know you from your own town, the questions they ask you is is still like, have you ever played Ronnie O'Sullivan or have you played at the Crucible? And he's one of the questions. So obviously the answer you give, if they don't already know, is he had a did. And then it's what happened. Then you tell them the story, which I'm fine about. It's just, as I say, I've had worse losses than that, trust me. We're going to come now to the quickfire round, which is just when I Hopefully. throw a few topics at you yeah. and you say whatever comes into your head. Your favourite movie? I'm going to be boring, because I know probably a few people have said, but Shawshank Redemption, I think, is the closest thing to a perfect movie you're going to get. There's a reason so many people say yeah, that. Yeah, it's exactly, because yeah. it's such a great movie. Absolutely. Shot clocks. Uh, I, w- I would say I would say no to shot clocks. I would actually say no to shot clocks. I mean, it's all a bit of fun when we do the shootout and stuff. But, you know, I don't think... Maybe there's one or two players who may be pushing it a little bit for slow play, but but I don't think I don't think it's over intentional. You know, you, you play how you play and, and that's that. The best you've ever played in any match? Um, well, the Carter one when I made the maximum because I had another century and a couple of breaks in that was, was up there. But I actually remember playing uh, 
Luca Brissell in um, in the World Championship qualifying, and I beat him ten three. I beat him, and this was going back a good few years now, but I think I'm, I must have been nine nine frame winning breaks. I, I, he was coming through, and he was like the new kid on the block, and and I. And I just remember totally outplaying him, and I'm feeling like when I was, because it's not often it happens where you you actually feel like you're not going to miss. And I had one of those days, so I'd, I'd put that one up there as well. One thing you would change about life on the tour? It's not so much life on the tour. I would change on the tour itself. I would change the prize money. I think it's disgusting how you can be a professional snooker player and not earn money. You know, number seventeen in the world potentially could not earn a penny. In, in the year, you know, or, or whatever number you want to say. Um, so I would definitely change that. I think it's, I'm all for having a high first prize, but you've got to pay people's expenses and, and, and give them something just to feel worthy of, of the hard work they've put in. And I've heard you're a big music fan, so I'll allow you to have a number of answers if you want to yeah. this one. Your favourite song? Favourite song is Pictures of You by The Cure. A really, really nice song. It's got so many meanings to it, and I think everybody could relate to it. You've been described as someone who was a big fan of that whole Manchester scene that was big when we were growing up. Is that true? Uh, well, sort of. Yeah. I mean, like I like all like Stone Roses and and Happy Mondays and all that type of music. I live not sort of too far. I live closer to Liverpool than you, than uh, Manchester, but yeah, I like all like that type of music as well. Yeah. And you went to see the Stone Roses, I believe, when they were at their peak. Well, I, it was actually my dad who went to watch him in the first gig. That was uh, sort of where we live, a place called uh, Spike Island. They played a very, very famous gig. Mm. And we, it was my dad who actually went down to it. But um, it's an iconic place that the, the people who were there watching it that day was, like I say, all like Oasis and all the big bands coming through. But I have since been to see... Stone Rose, yeah, I have been to see them and they were, they, were, they were amazing, yeah. You mentioned there where you're from and you had a local practice base some years ago that was taken away from you in extraordinary circumstances. There was a fire, wasn't there? Yeah, well, there was a fire there, yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> well, I don't want to start like throwing accusations about there, but there was, there was problems with the building and then before we knew it, the thing had gone up in flames. Uh, and then again, like I said before, Paul Antrobuster, the fellow who uh, who helped me, sponsored and managed me for years, he sort of he got me a, a little private room that I could practice in there, and um, we moved since then. And then I've been there about ten years now. But I've had most players come down, or Sullivan and Higgins and Maguire, and obviously Ricky Wall and Williams has been down. We've had we've had them all down. It's only a little private room, but. It's perfect for, for what we need. People have different ideas. Some like solo practice. Some like to play against other players. And I guess most guys mix it up a bit between the two. So what do you think is more beneficial to you? Um, I prefer solo practice. But th- there is no substitute for actually playing games against people. You know, you, you, Because you can play all day long on your own. And then as soon as you get put in a, in a situation you've not practised, you sort of start scratching your head thinking, sort of what do we do? What if you're practice, practising against other like high-quality players, as I say, the likes of Ricky and Robbie Williams and, and my local pra- practice partners, Alan Taylor, Ian Burns, and, um, yeah, you get put in these positions and, and, and it's, yeah, it can do you no, no harm at all. 
You've been around, as we've said, Andrew, a really long time. It was 1996 <laughs> when you made your pro debut. That's more than a quarter of a century ago Thanks. now. So why do you think you've managed to stay around for so long? Because there aren't actually that many players, especially outside the very best, who were around as long as you have been and are still on the tour. What's been the key? Well, I'd like to think because I can, I'm good and I can play. But the thing is, is I love the game. You know, I still, I still practice. I still, you know, I put the hours in, maybe not as many as I did when I was younger, but I still sort of, I, I love the pressure of playing. I love practicing. I love the friends you have on the tour, the places you travel to. Um, but the top bottom is I'd like to think it's because, <laughs> because I'm, I've been half decent, you know. And you're 44 years of age now. So what do you feel at this stage you can still do? That's not old in snooker terms the no, way it used to be. It's definitely not. I mean, you can't use the, the very top boys as examples because they are the, the cream of the crop. But I still, I genuinely thought that, it, or I think, should I say, that if I, if I couldn't win something or I wasn't good enough, I genuinely would just, I wouldn't kid myself and I'd walk away. But... I still feel as though there's something there and what happens is I just I hit these little purple patches and I, and I, I play really well in a couple of matches but then it, it goes and and that's the frustrating part I, I know it's there but but it's just not there enough as, and, and consistently enough but I've definitely still got something in me and what you're saying there really underlines, Andrew, a reality about life on the tour that maybe a lot of the public perhaps don't realise. Every win is so hard to achieve. It's such a hard fight to get any result at all, isn't it? The standard, you'll hear people say this time and time again, Michael, but the, the standard is just, you wouldn't believe it. If, if these people, these like fans whoever, can come in and just see like some of the qualifiers and people are banging in tons left, right and centre, then the, his opponent gets up and knocks in a couple of tons. I mean, it's not like that every single game, but the standard is literally from one, number one to one to eight is, is, is so high. I think the difference is those very low ranked, when they get to meet the very big boys, I think they sort of caught in the headlights a little bit, but against everyone else, they've got that game, they can, each one can beat each one. And more and more we see it, don't we, that you can go out and play really, really well in a match. But there's a big difference between that and actually winning it. Well, without question, the amount of games that you lose, sort of, well, playing really well. And again, I'd go back to the, the, the big boys of the game. You, you have to play like that. And that still doesn't mean you're going to win. You've only got to look at some of the results where, where people have... have Played out the out the skin and been beat, it, and it's yeah, it's I keep saying it, but it's so cut throughout the game. It really, really is the the, the quality now. Do you ever think about life after snooker and what it might be? Uh, I think obviously the older you get, it starts creeping in a little bit. But you know, I'd like to think I've set myself up so I'm I'm, I'm financially okay. So that's sort of a, a worry that or something I'm not worrying about. But I think the actual what to do with yourself, I would, I sort of wouldn't like to think because, like I said, I, I love the game and I love, I love being around at all. Unfortunately, it's just one, one of those things that just happens in, in, in any walk of life, especially sport. 
And you've had your moments, as we've discussed. You're extremely well-liked on the tour for reasons which I think have been underlined by the way you've spoken here. You've just had great fun doing it. I get that sense from you. Yeah, I think you've got to. I think, you know, you can't take yourself too seriously. The people we have and and the friends I've got on the tour, well, the same as I am. I think that's why we sort of gel. You know, they don't take themselves too seriously. You know, they're good fun. They can... You, you would never know they played snooker. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. Who are your big mates on the tour? Uh, well, I'd like. I'm not trying to brag, but I think I'd, I'd like to think I've got a few. There's, there's obviously Ricky, um, Ricky Walden. There's John Higgins, Stephen Maguire, uh, Matthew Stevens, Joe Perry, Barry Hawkins, Mark Allen. The list could sort of go on. They're all. They're all people that you would gladly sit in a corner in a pub and have a couple of couple of Guinness with and, and put the world to rights. I was going to say, they sound like the party guys on the tour that you're listing there. Which actually brings me to something Joe Perry said about you when he was on here the other week. Yeah. He gave you quite a tribute. He said you're the best dancer on the tour. So what do you think? <laughs> Is he right? I'm, I'm definitely not a dancer. I, I know I'll throw a couple of shapes and I've got a bit of rhythm, but I'm the furthest thing from a dancer. But... I can dance to a beat, yeah. There's, um, I've seen a couple throwing a few shapes, though. I'll tell you, uh, Luca, Luca Brissell's got a few moves. He's got a few moves as well, yeah. But, yeah, I need a few beers down me. But as I said, I, I wouldn't be signing off a Strictly. <laughs> well, listen, when you become middle-aged men like us, it's not really <laughs> dancing for any of us, is it? It's just so long as you can manage something out there. That, that's all it is, bit of fun. Yeah, and that always is enough to impress people when you get to this stage in life. Uh, Andrew, it's just been such a pleasure talking to you today. It's not hard to see why you are one of the most popular guys on the tour and everyone would love to see you have a few more big moments in whatever's left of your career. Thanks very much for joining us on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. Next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast, a celebration of one of the great snooker stories, the wonderfully varied and eventful life of John Virgo. He's been UK champion, chairman of the sport, and one of the legendary commentators. And among so much else, John will be reflecting on how a turn doing impressions of other players led on to a very different life. What happens in life that you do things and you don't realise at the time what effect it's going to have on the rest of your life? Because when I'm now getting near the end of my playing career, I get a phone call from the BBC asking me what would be interested in doing a, a snooker quiz show. And it was basically because they'd seen those impersonations and said, well, he could have a bit of fun with those on the show. So that's coming up next week on an unmissable World Snooker Tour podcast. And don't forget to check out our bonus content, The 147, rounding up the week's snooker headlines in 147 seconds, out every Tuesday. Until then, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.